Alistair. If you're here, come forward. Alistair, if that is you in the shadows, make yourself known. We're currently stood in a circle surrounding the symbol on the floor. Draw your power and speak into this device. Check, check us one of the cameras if you want. Check us one of the cameras. Yeah, that sounded like it. That is nuts. That is weird. Crowley, that's a very unusual name to get out of a spirit box. This is episode six of One Dark Night. We've abandoned the car because we've literally run out of road. The dirt track we're on has come to an end and we've come deep into the Cornish landscape to find an abandoned mine because here, somewhere, is a shack that belongs to a local folklorist who spent years researching the stories and figures that haunt this part of Cornwall. Of course, one of those people is the man at the heart of our story, the person who is infamous in this part of the world, Alistair Crowley. And there are rumours and stories about him to this day. So what we're hoping is that our folklorist can help us discover what Crowley was doing here in Cornwall and why he provokes such a strong reaction from the people that live here. I am a folklorist and my specific interest is Cornish folklore and magical traditions in Cornish folklore. Um, in my teens, I got a very... Hang on, I'm going to walk across and I'm going to show you the book. Steve Patterson's shack is full of wood carvings and electronic equipment for his podcast. My grandmother gave me some... And the shelves that run along one wall are groaning with books. When I was very young. There we go. I've got this Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain. Oh, that looks like beautiful. Reader's Digest. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. And this book is amazing. So many people pull this book up and say, this is the book that got me into folklore. Do you did know what? Through? So did I. Hey, there you go. There you go. No, so, so, so many people have. But the wonderful thing about this book is it's, it's full of fantastic illustrations. It is. But it's divided up into different locations. And it's got maps in it. Yep. And they made a massive change i think this book changed the way we look at folklore because it suddenly connected folklore with place yes also there on one of the shelves is a copy of the tregerthan horror by paul newman you'll remember that this is the account that graham and i discovered and which claims to reveal what happened that night at the cottage i met paul newman um yeah um so sadly no longer with us Mm. And, you know, one of the things he said was that when he was collecting these stories about Crowley, in all his years of journalism, he never, ever came across anyone who people got so hot under the collar about. <laughs> no. There's all these stories about Crowley down 
down here and they're people they're they're not just casual stories they're stories that people are still very much engaged with very much so yeah which which is really interesting which makes you which makes me as a folklorist think well we're not talking about historical character we're talking about a a, almost like a mythological construct of crowley yeah who was who was down here and it's almost this this idea that crowley somehow imbues a sense of otherness and a sense of dark magic into the landscape wherever he goes we hear stories about him uh, men and toll don't we and um and it's always interesting there's very specific points i don't don't know of any many any other prehistoric places he's been associated with only men and toll right men and toll is um, in west penworth it's um a prehistoric site it's um it consists of two upright stones and a slab in the center with a large hole in the middle it's a, it's a very odd prehistoric site it's out on its own there's no similar places like it um yeah, very magical very numinous place um and there's kind of stories associated with it that, like if you climb through it in a certain direction right. full moon or yeah. whatever these stories were again collected by Bottrell Hunt in the 19th century. So there were supposed yeah. to be healing circles, and children would pass through the um, the hole in the centre of this stone, and it was, um, I think, I think it was said to be uh, said to heal rickets, I think, amongst yeah. other diseases. Um, but it was very ritualistic the way it's done. It, it had to be so many, um, so many. You had to be passed so many times through the hole in a very in a very particular direction. So we get this very interesting. Um, connection of healing virtues, a prehistoric site, and a re- ritualistic act that goes with it. Yeah. it. The stories are that basically he went there and yeah. he did some kind of ritual. Yeah. This is the interesting thing. No specifics Nobody at knows. all. No. But nevertheless, it's just connecting this mythological figure of Crowley with this place. Yes. But yeah, so yeah. Uh, Crowley's connected with it. Um, stories of Crowley uh, doing black masses in Burian Church. Oh, not come across that one. Oh, before. no, no, that's quite, that's quite a common one. It's interesting. Burian Church is actually right in the middle of the village. Yeah, it's so. extremely unlikely that such a thing would happen. But again, sort of Burian Church, very numinous place. So that story, the, the Paul Newman's version of events, he didn't tell you at all where he might have got that from. No, no, no. he didn't. No, no. So, I mean, that's the great mystery here, if you like, where the story which which has persisted originated. Yes. Yeah, yeah no, that, is a, that, is, that is a big question, isn't it? And from a folklorist point of view, that must be what you struggle with all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, how do you trace the origins of something? But you're usually yeah. looking at things that are but sometimes hundreds of years old. Or so the, the origin sometimes isn't the most no. interesting and defining feature of a story sometimes it's it's how this story grows and changes and morphs and the influence it has on people's lives this is maybe the interesting part of the whole story yeah but it's but there's always the intriguing thing when looking at someone like crowley okay there's this folkloric crowley who's clearly a very real presence in cornwall yeah but there could be a historical could well be. as well yeah i mean the fact that you know pat doherty lived down here 
makes you think he must have had some kind of connection well, sure. down there. He must have been coming and going at some stage. Yeah, and I mean, it's not far from Zener. Oh, no, not across, at all. Across to Penzance. Not at all. Paul, you know, no distance. No, and of course there's, um, there are, um, again, stories of Crowley round um, Lamorna as oh. well. Again, not specific stories, just stories of his presence around there. I mean, inevitably, what we're doing with this aspect of this podcast is is contributing to this myth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was never our intention, <laughs> but we are doing so. But that's the crazy thing about folklore, isn't it? It's, um, it's you know, for the, the uh, particle physicists, they realised that, you know, when they were looking at particles, they were affecting it because they were realising that they themselves are made of particles and you you can't separate folklore is exactly the same you can't separate yourself as soon as you start looking at it you suddenly become part of this weird crazy folkloric continuum yes you do. <laughs> it's remarkable and this is a, this feels like a new yeah. almost like a potentially yeah. new folklore folk story emerging yeah. you know of the great beast in in cornwall And so we we get these stories of this mythical character of, of Crowley moving round Cornwall, um, um, visiting these places, and somehow leaving this essence essence, like I said, of otherness and dark magic wherever he goes. Before we leave, Steve mentioned something almost in passing. It's about someone who lived down here in Cornwall and who devoted a chapter in one of her books to Alistair Crowley. The same thing applies to the the folklore down here. I think there's something inherently in the land. Yeah. The occultist and surrealist artist Ethel Cahoon, she was very aware of this kind of magic in the landscape. And it's what drew her down here. Mm. And in her book, The Living Stones of Cornwall, she devotes a chapter to Crowley being down there. In a chapter in a book where she writes about him, she does talk mainly about, um, yeah, just about the story about him being down there. What we've she, been saying, really. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Mm. Now, she mm. wanted to join the Hermetic, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, mm-hmm. which was, was called the, the organisation... Um, that Crowley was involved with but they would never so she went off and joined a number of other esoteric groups most of which were of a Thelemic Crowley-esque slant Phil Calhoun is it's not someone I'm familiar with. Let me just have a look at my um at my phone. So according to the tape website, she was obviously an artist. And ah, this is interesting. She had well she joined the British Surrealist movement and she had a lifelong preoccupation with magic. There you go then. Sorry, darling, we're recording. Okay, I'm just going to turn for you, trust, then I've come home. Okay, see you back there. 
Bye. Do you need anything from White Trans? No. You sure? Still recording. So, um, anything else? Uh, drawings have all been given to the uh, by the National Trust to Tate. And okay, so she uh, was pretty somebody special in her time. Definitely. And she moved to Cornwall. Mm. It says here in the 1940s, and became an acknowledged authority on the occult. There you go. And her book, The Living Stones, Cornwall is about the interplay between humans and landscape and it's been republished was republished in 2016 with an introduction by Stuart Lee or Stuart Lee the comedian yeah ah do you think he's funny then do you like Stuart Lee well I've been to see him a couple of times actually Mm. Um, I remember one time I actually thought I might go and try and get his autograph (laughs) did you what the, how are you going to go and do that? Ian? Well, I, yeah, I was thinking about whether you know you kind of hang around back at the stage door or like you kind of groupie. Well, if I do want to get his autograph, how am I going to go about doing it? What are the practicalities? Because you know it's not the kind of thing that um, I think probably people do on the same scale anymore. No. Anyway, so but why would you want to get his autograph? I think it's just something. Uh, it just occurred to me, you know, get his autograph. Uh, why not? You know, I'm so, when I'm, you go to book signings and you get people to um, to sign the book and then they you give you the copy of the book and smile at you and you kind of think, yeah, job done. You've watched that person write something. Well, that, that, that sounds a bit Kinky. weird now. Yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't because I wanted to watch Stuart Lee write something. I think I just generally thought, oh, yeah. Yeah, you could, do, you could, just, yeah, get, you could just get an autograph there. So and, go on then, did you, did you get his autograph? Nah. <laughs> I mean, just speaking to Steve then and, and reading up about, I thought, Colhoun, we are just kind of getting a little bit of purchase on this man Crowley, but we're not really... I mean, maybe she, maybe, you know, she'll be able to tell us something about him. I don't know. I mean, it just seems at the minute we just need to make a little bit of a... We just need to make inroads into finding out a bit more about it's him. It's a bit, do, bit more research kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like go to the library. Right, maybe. okay, very funny. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm abs- this time, honestly, I am absolutely serious. Let's, let's go to the library and see what comes up. There might be something in there. We need some hard facts to go on here. You know what, Graham? I beginning to get to get something which I hadn't quite realised before and that there is something mystical about this landscape. Yeah there is there is really something mystical about it. So what have you got then? Right. Well, I've um, I've got some books, obviously. I can see, I can yeah. See, but what? Right. Okay. Um, they did have the Living Stones hey. by Ethel Colhoun. She, in her book, she said that Crowley only came to Cornwall once, 
It was in 1938, but Ooh. she's saying August. Ah. Now, she, well, she kind of has it both ways. She says she never met him, but she did say by sheer coincidence in a bookshop that she came across him. Okay. I happened to be in a bookshop when he was there. Right. And she said there was, she didn't sense any sense of evil about him, but he clearly wanted everyone to hear what he said. And she describes him as look, looking like a not very well-off country gentleman. Okay. So a man who wanted to be the centre of attention nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly you just get that little pen portrait. Um, I got the impression that she didn't really think that he really was like the image no. that's portrayed. No. But the thing is that in terms of the timeline that we're looking at, it's a bit frustrating that she's saying August 1938 in Cornwall, so he was there, but not in May, and it doesn't place him at the cottage. So, um, but he was in Cornwall that year. Yes, yeah. So it's possible. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we just don't have anyone well, we telling us that. to document it, no. Now, there is something else which was completely unexpected but quite exciting. Okay. So they've got in their archives there some old recordings. Okay. And they've um, lent me this one to have a listen to. Um, I'm just going to put it into the machine and so you can have a listen. So, what do you think? Uh, okay, sounds like Winston Churchill. Actually, we are listening to the great beast himself. Oh, okay. This is a recording of Alistair Crowley. Crowley. Whoa. Let me play a bit more. So what do you make of that? Is it his own poetry? Is it, is it his yeah. own writing he's reading? Yeah, he's, so he recorded uh, poems that he'd written himself, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, I didn't imagine that his, it would be so accessible, really. Yeah, I mean, there is stuff um, which is described as Enochian as well, which is in a language which, well, it's not English, obviously. So there's some of that stuff as well. Yeah, but um, there are poems in English, um, and I mean you can sense the theatricality of him, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and the description: uh, uh, a man who, to all intents and purposes, kind of came across as an ordinary person, but yet at the same time there was something charismatic, something that drew your eye and your attention. Um. And also, I guess, back in those years, because although there were recordings, um, there were recordings of music and things like that, but I suppose you must have 
you must have had a motivate. You must have had a reason for wanting to record your own voice for posterity. Yeah, the sense of your own life beyond your life, a sense of of importance, of a cultural significance of yourself. It's a bit tantalising for me as well because you kind of get a sense of him, but it's still over all these decades and years that have gone by. He's still a bit of a remote figure. Yeah. But the photographs that we've seen of him, the, the the staged and posed photographs, where he he presents himself very much as the great sage, the great philosopher, but also at the same time uh, a, a serious man, but also something in those images that are frightening and unnerving and designed to be so, I think. I mean, whether that's who he truly was or not, I don't know whether it was just a... Uh, just a, an image he created for himself, you know, a way of publicizing him himself and his philosophies and his religious beliefs, I don't know. But he's a fascinating character, isn't he? And you can understand how the myths have grown up around him. One of the other things that uh, was really helpful when I was chatting to Kath... Good old Kath. ...was that she gave me this title which is uh, called Alistair Crowley in England, uh, the author's Tobias Churton. And um, actually they told me that his sixth book about Crowley mm. is due out any time now. So, okay. I mean, in terms of people that we might want to speak to, he just sounds like the person. Yeah, what he do you, sounds what do you like think? a Crowley expert. He sounds like a man, or, or at least a man who's done an awful lot of research into Crowley. So, yeah. And also we the fact of, if he's written the book Alistair Crowley in England, you'd kind of assume that he knew the movements yeah. of... Interesting that he didn't include Cornwall in the title. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take him up on that. Why yeah, don't we? Yeah. Let's take him up on that. That could be your first question. Yeah, it should say Alistair Crowley in England and Cornwall. Are you making a nationalistic joke here? I am. I, sorry, I completely went right over my head there. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. No, I like it. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> Tobias Churton studied theology at Oxford, had success with the Channel 4 series Gnostics, and is a leading scholar in the field of Western esotericism. His books about Alistair Crowley detail his time in Germany, India, America, England and France. He depicts the so-called Great Beast as a sort of Renaissance man, an occultist, magician, poet, writer and a painter who exhibited his work in Berlin, a man who befriended Man Ray and André Gide in Paris, a man who worked for the British and US intelligence agencies a man who combined mountaineering and mysticism while he was in India. This does seem to be someone who lived an extraordinary life. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can remember it. I, I, I always do it in the voice Crowley did it in, because it just seems to work that way. <laughs> Bury me in a nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. They slew me 
before I did disparage, therefore, religion, law, and marriage. So be my grave without a name, that earth may swallow up my shame. <laughs> well, that was him doing his Churchill, I think. We've set up a video call with Tobias Churton. It's funny, I do find that people who know least about Crowley tend to call him Crowley, um, in, in my experience, which shows they haven't got... He even wrote a poem about this. He said, Crowley as in holy, not Crowley mm. as in foully. Who, like the subject of his books, appears on the screen as a larger-than-life figure. So Crowley is another character. Crowley is the, is the character of myth. He's the one that was regenerated into blackness by Dennis Wheatley, who should have known better, and uh, by the popular press, and by uh, John Simons in the 1950s and 60s with his uh, biography, The Great Beast, which unfortunately is very readable, and, uh, and it sounds very authoritative. Um, but it, it, it is, in fact, a travesty. But Crowley was travestied from the time he was an undergraduate, practically, at, at, uh, at Cambridge. It, it just seemed to be something that pursued him, that everything he did, it's slightly unusual, got him into, into trouble. You know, he's, he's the guy, the man we'd love to hang, you know. That was the way John Bull described him, the man we'd love to hang, and they've been hanging him ever since, really. Because and they wanted to hang him because he was a challenge to the establishment then? I think he represented a fundamental challenge to the values of of uh, of certain kind a certain kind of uh, British imperialist in the um, late nineteenth and to, for most of the twentieth century in, in in our country. His his instinct was for for uh, I suppose you say today a radical kind of freedom, i.e. that uh, children shouldn't be ritually beaten in schools, which was normal in his day, that homosexuals shouldn't be put into hard labour as was Oscar Wilde, and uh, a lot of things that today are totally taken for granted. He was a you know a, a kind of outsider. Um, that's a word that was given to him by a, a great uh, uh, German art um, promoter who put Crowley's art in exhibition. The only, in fact, he was the only British artist in the late Weimar period to have his own exhibition in Berlin. Crowley was a true decadent in the French sense of the French 1880s and 1890s period. He's 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 the, he's the, really a kind of British Baudelaire. You. People may argue his poetry wasn't as good as Baudelaire's, and Crowley would agree. Uh, but the spirit of Baudelaire and the spirit of Crowley are very similar. Man is so infinitely small in all these stars, determinate, maker and molder of them all. Man is so infinitely great We started this project by um, just researching uh, an aspect of uh, something that had happened near Zena in Cornwall, which has been attached to this myth of who um, Crowley is. The Tregethan horror stuff. You know about this. Oh, God, I read it many years ago. What do you make of it? 
Well, I'm sure Paul Newman is, 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 I mean, I think we did have some communication at one point. I think the book's sincere, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The entire Cornwall episode of Crowley's life is boiled down to one week, one week summer holiday in the summer of 1938, where he went down to uh, Newlyn and um, Paul and that area and Morva and explored around there. Uh, because he was chasing two people. Uh, he was chasing Greta Sekira, who was a London socialite, very beautiful, who he was mad about. And she was a, she was a, quite an amazing lady herself. And he was after uh, John Bland Jameson, who was an actor acting in Newlyn at the time, um, because Jameson had, had rented him his, his flat in Hasker Street in, in London, West London. And uh, Crowley wanted him to pursue his magical studies properly, but uh, Bland Jameson kept sort of freaking out. And but Jameson had promised him he would invest in his one of his uh, Crowley's pet projects at the time, which was a kind of clinic for rejuvenation. And he was only there for about five or six days. And other than that, he played with his son Alistair Atterturk, as he liked to call him, which was Randall Gare, which was uh, Patricia Doherty's uh, son from Crowley and playing with him on the rocks at, uh, at, at Newlyn with their dog. And I can't remember the name of the dog, but a very friendly dog. And he was back before, it, the whole trip was paid for by Frida Harris, who paid his train fare. I rather looked after him like you would an old, an old uh, relative. So where do, you, where do you think the Paul Newman, where did this come from, this Trigurth and Horror story? Well, I think if you, read, if you read, the trouble is to read the book carefully and see where the Crowley bits have inserted and actually go rather cleverly sort of dovetail with the general story. You need to know a lot more about Crowley and see how it abuses, yeah. abuses the history. Uh, I can't say it's abu deliberate because I, I, think, I, th I think that Paul probably looked at some of the diaries and some of the things and... It's as very easily the case, you know, that old thing, connect, only connect. There was too much, there's too, just too much connection, but actually when you analyse it, they, none of it connects. And to see him still being associated with witchcraft and covens and black magic and this sort of thing is just a joke for anyone who's studied the man and, like myself, spent a lot of time enjoy, enjoyably among his papers. When I went through his private papers, diaries, letters, uh, the stuff at the Warburg Institute in great deal, detail over many years, I never felt once that I was in the presence of a disturbed or psychopathic or even dangerous character. It was, it was just sheer delight to me. He wasn't into black magic. He, was, he, he liked the word magic because for him it meant the original science. And the original science as he's understood it, talking about the Magi, the Magi, the Magoi of ancient Iran, were people, were the only science that was available in the, in the, in the world at that time. So when he talks about magic, he's talking about a form of science which involves uh, perception of powers that are not uh, recognized currently by materialist science. And you've got to remember the science that he was brought up on in the 19th century was entirely materialist. Well, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Then your version of him 
um, from your researches is is so opposed to the to the popular image of him as this raging, egotistical um, delver into darkness and devilment. You know, a, 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 a hedonist who's um, who's out of control and uh, a raging drug addict, not to be trusted. But this is the the, the picture you're giving of him is of course much less tabloid than than that uh, that's the whole point it's it doesn't it, uh, it and i didn't if i'd have wanted to write to make money out of this of course i'd have played up to the i'd have written yeah. the rock the rock and roll biography you know uh, yeah. crowley and rock uh, let's write yeah. about jimmy page and david bowie and john lennon and all these people you have in crowley really a, 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 a tremendously glamorous and wayward personality, wayward in terms of he didn't do what mummy told him. Uh, but I think you have a profound religious thinker. And on that, he would want to be judged, I think, ultimately. And uh, so I think Crowley, Crowley stands for every kind of genuine and sincere um, spiritual liberty. And do you believe that that is the reason that he's been so misrepresented and pilloried. Difficult to think otherwise, I would say, given the, the evidence. Well, he said, actually, he said a wonderful thing in a letter to Gerald York in about 1944. He said, I do not believe I'm a great man, but I've had a great work to do. Back on the road for one final journey. Yeah, our last our last journey, absolutely. And it's been it's been one hell of a trip for me, anyway. I mean, I feel as if I've I've not only explored, I'd set out to explore with you this this mystery story, and it's become actually an exploration of of, of myself in lots of ways, as well as the subject material. I've learned a lot, I think, through the process of this. But actually, I think, for me, the most important thing is that we've kind of... Un we've, we've unwrapped the myth. We've, we've identified the myth of what happened up at that, at that cottage. We've, um, I think, told the truth about it, which is, in a way, much more of course, much more mundane than a woman dying because she was confronted with an, an image of the devil conjured by Alistair Crowley in a cottage on the moor. I think we've, to a large extent, exploded that story and shown it to be a story that's grown up over time, that's been embellished um, from a, a much more mundane truth, really, that, that a woman died an unfortunate and tragic death in that cottage when she was there trying to help someone. But the most important thing of all for me has been that I hope that to some extent we've rescued Carl Cox from, from the myth and we've disentangled her from Crowley um, and all the, 
the tabloidese, if you like, that has surrounded him over the decades. Because Carl Cox was quite an extraordinary woman. She, had, she led a, a marvelous life in so many ways and was responsible for, for so much good. Um, she was, I believe, the first female magistrate in Cornwall. Um, she and her husband, Will, were important in the establishment of the League of Nations, which became the, the United Nations eventually. So they had both local influence and they, they had enormous influence on an international stage too. And all of that, all of that, all of that goodness and, and what they brought to the world has been lost in this, in this story of the occult and, and the events of the night at the cottage, which have been woven into something quite sensational, which have very little bearing on truth at all. So I hope more than anything else, we've rescued her from that story. And perhaps people will now look, look at Carl Cox, if they get an opportunity to, in a very different way. Yeah, and I think the same could be said for the Vaughan family as well, and which family, yeah. were portrayed as kind of side players, but again, almost just represented as serving this mythical story about the consequences of Satanism and sort of just kind of wheeled on. Um, but in fact, their whole life that went on from there has been affected and you know we heard as well how the next generation were affected by that story it's not something that i can imagine that they would have wanted for mm. the family and it's it's just lingered and for them i guess maybe wondering how you know how can we dispel this how can we mm. so i hope that in the case of the vaughan family as well that the truth of what actually happened will ensure that in the future people aren't so quick just to go with the sensationalist stories that have been um, told about them. Yeah, and we can extrapolate out from that, really, to look at other aspects of the way our world works at the moment, where we're, we're all prone through social media and so on respond to sensationalism in stories. I mean, particularly, I love a sensationalist story, as you know. Well, I, I was going to ask you this. Look, aren't you, you know, having even having said what you've said, a bit disappointed that there isn't this unknowable, mysterious dimension to this story? I was along the way. I, there were times when I was disappointed. But actually, the... The journey's been very rich because it's taught me so much um, that, that actually inside the sensational story is a far more interesting story about the lives of real people well-lived. Those well-lived lives need to be celebrated. And there's not a little bit of you that still thinks, look, somehow if I were to go up to the cottage... I'd find something that perhaps just couldn't be explained. I think if we were to go up to the cottage now and we had the courage somehow or other to open the door and walk in, 
I think what we would find in there, in our imaginations, would be all of the characters who we've discovered in the process of telling this story. I think for us, somehow or other, they would all be there. So whether they're there as ghosts or spirits or products of our imagination, to me, those characters will always inhabit that place. So here we are again at the cottage. We are. Different weather this time, then. Back where we began, but yeah, this time in the pouring rain. And I don't know whether it's just the weather or the dark clouds, but despite everything we've learned, it still looks as mysterious as ever. Yeah, it's a glowering building, whatever the weather. It just is that way. And we kind of know now a lot of the characters, a lot of the people that we've met along the way who are associated with this place. And it's still spooky, isn't it? Whatever we've discovered, it's still a spooky place. It does seem to have its place here in the landscape and you just don't see it going away. I kind of feel like we could just sort of open this door that we're standing outside of right now, Ian. We could open this door and a lot of the characters that we've met along the way will be waiting for us in there. What a salesman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, think? so you want you want us to go inside. Well, well, we're here. We're here. This is as close as we've got. Well, I mean, I can't deny I'm curious. Yeah, I am good, curious. Good, good. Yeah. And it's a matter of but, you know, we've we've done the story and we found out what we wanted to find out. Yeah. And you found out some things you weren't expecting to find out. Yeah, very much so. I don't feel like I want to need to go inside for this further podcast. I feel like I want to go inside for me, really. Yeah. So, um, come on, is what I say. Let's do it. Let's right. okay. take courage. So you're now saying we've got to go inside. I think we should take courage and do it. We should go for it. It's been a long journey to get us here. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly agree about that. And, so, you know... And we are so on the threshold. We are, so... You know what? We've reached the end of this podcast, One Dark Night. For me and for Graham, it's been quite a journey. Well, we've met some fantastic people and learned so much. But what's your verdict? Did we solve the mystery? Is there anything else you can tell us about this story? Was there anything we missed? It would be great to hear from you. We're already thinking about our next investigation and what that's going to be. Maybe you've got a suggestion. And if you have, you can find us on social media with the handle One Dark Podcast. Or email us at One Dark podcast at gmail.com please do get in touch 
It'd be great to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time. It's gonna clear up again When the clouds go rolling by A rainbow lights the sky Don't you feel blue Cause I'll be there for you We'll watch the clouds go rolling by Ain't gonna rain, 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 rain,